like this or whatever. <laughs> so, so there's my Facebook page. There's my uh, website. I'd love you to uh, check it out. What we're going to um, consider tonight was, was there really a global flood? Was there really a global flood? Why would we even ask that? Well, because a lot of people don't think so. Believers, you know, they think, that well, it wasn't a, a global flood. And, of course, the evolutionary secular community, they think the whole thing is ridiculous. But what are some of the objections to a global flood? We're going to be focusing on this idea of a global versus a local flood somewhere. Well, uh, a lot of people just say a loving God wouldn't destroy the world like that. You know, that is at the very root of idolatry. Making up a God according to what you think he should be and then saying that's what God is like. So, you know, a lot of people have Jesus and he's an idol. He's not Jesus. He's a Jesus they made up. So this idea of a loving God and then determining what this God should or should not do. A loving God wouldn't destroy the world like that. Well, let's look at a couple of Bible verses um, and see what the Bible says. Because God speaks for himself in the word. So we don't have to sort of imagine what God is or should be like. Ephesians 5, 6 says this. For this you know. No. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So frankly, this whole concept of, oh, a loving God wouldn't do this or wouldn't do that. You know, and, and some Christians even, oh, yeah, you know, that's a deception that we need to be very, very careful about not to fall in. This right here says what? The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so we read uh, the kind of disobedience that was going on in the days of Noah. Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, sometimes we think that we're in a we're in a period of time when uh, it's like the days of Noah. You know, I don't know about that. I mean, I mean, just look at the group right here. I mean, Noah was alone and we've got a, uh, a family of, of brothers and sisters here. Right. Now, I'm not saying that uh, it's got to get to be like the like one family left, but that one of that one of the prayer requests up there, you know, praying for the families to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We don't know if the Lord's going to come back in our lifetime or if what we're doing is setting uh, a foundation for a remnant that will go on for centuries before the Lord comes back. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm encouraged by your assembly here, especially the families. And uh, the mothers and fathers that are raising their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's so, so, so important. This global flood idea. Uh, one of the things that we read in, in the Genesis 6 is that God over and over again talks about destroying everything. 6.12 And God looked upon the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh. All flesh had corrupt in their way upon the earth. Verse 17 And behold... God is speaking. I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. 6.19 And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every kind into the ark 
and all flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, beasts, and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Well, what, you know, what does all flesh mean? He says over and over and over again, he's going to destroy all flesh. And then another thing that um, a lot of times I'll be speaking with people that, uh, you know, they're believers, but they just don't think that it was a global flood. And I'll ask him, well, what about the rainbow covenant then? Remember the promise that God made to Noah and not just to Noah, but all the creatures? Chapter 9, 11, and I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. Not just talking about for a little while, all generations to come. I set my bow on the cloud and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now, if God is just talking about a local flood there when he judges the whole world to destroy all flesh. Think how many times he has broken that promise. I mean, just recently, I was just reading about in North Carolina somewhere, a big flood, 11 people killed. Over and over and over and over again, we see floods. The only way this promise means anything is that he's talking about a global flood, which he brought upon the earth in the days of Noah and promises that he never will do again. And, you know, when I've challenged some people <laughs> about that, they, um, you know, that's, that's a tough one. So remember that if you're chatting with somebody, just ask them, how do they interpret then the rainbow the rainbow covenant because it seems to me that if there wasn't a global flood he has broken that promise innumerable times other objections life could not repopulate earth in just uh, several thousands of years um, well let's uh, stop there um, what we're finding is that <laughs> life repopulates empty areas incredibly fast. My wife was working for a lab that was studying the effects of pollution and then when they stopped the pollution in Lake Erie back, this would have been in 1980, in the 1980s. And it had only been a few years, five or seven years at the most, where they had stopped allowing the pollution to come out of the Cuyahoga River into, into Lake Erie. You know, that used to catch on fire uh, how many of you uh, re even remember those days? Maybe not. Um, well, she was, uh, they were studying how the ecosystem was coming back. And they were just digging up mud and then just checking what stuff is in there. And they were stunned at all the worms that were already starting to grow back. This was just after f five to seven years of, of stopping the pollution. They had been talking about Lake Erie will be dead for 100 years. Within 15 years, less than 20, Lake Erie was right back to the way it had been uh, before uh, they, they started polluting it so badly. Life rapidly returns. God has made life very resilient. Plants grow very, back very, very quickly. According to the, the ideas that, okay, you knock down all the forests on the planet as a result of the flood. So how long is it going to take for all these things to grow back? Well, forests, you know, full, full growth trees are going to take a while. But mats are considered to be part of the way things were very rapidly revegetated. Floating mats 
not only with vegetation, but bugs, eggs. It's not like the only bugs left on the earth were the ones on the ark, okay? I mean, there would have been all kinds of life that survived uh, and rapidly began to repopulate the earth. Not enough room on the ark. This is a common uh, objection, and yet more and more things are happening now where that objection at least is being put aside. I had the opportunity back in August to go to the Ark Encounter. I understand Malcolm went to. Anybody else go to the Ark yet? Anybody else? You've seen it? Okay. I'm going to take you on a quick little, little tour of the Ark. Um, this, is, uh, yeah, this is what I found in Williamstown, Kentucky. There it is. This has, uh, of course, got a lot of imagination to it. We don't know all the particulars about a sail and how the uh, bow may have looked, but we do know the size. And this is built according to the size. They use the Hebrew um, cubit, which is 22 inches, I think. So this is about 500 feet long and so on and so forth. When you get there, you pull into a parking lot and you can see it way off in the distance. Now that brown, darker brown um, square to the right, that holds stairways and all the equipment necessary for air conditioning and bathrooms and all of that. So it's not just a freestanding boat. It's a building shaped like a boat. <clears throat> but you get up close as you uh, drive up to it, and it's, it's, it's really impressive. They take you on buses to get there because uh, they, don't want park, you know, they don't want cars parked all around the ark, so they park on a parking lot and take you there. And the buses are going back and forth. That scaffolding there is, is not... Um, you might think that it was, oh, this is the scaffolding they used to build the ark, but that's a zip line. They've got zip lines. They're planning all kinds of attractions around this. Someday it's going to be a full-fledged uh, Christian amusement park, like, like Disney World, only hopefully, uh, certainly uh, a little more wholesome. So there it is when you get up close to it. See the door and the big ramp? I had wished that we could have gone up the ramp and gone through the door, but you don't get to go in that way. You go in through the bottom. Here it is from the, uh, the stern. I think that's the stern. And there's the door that the Lord closed. Those are some of the beams, these timbers that they used. There was a forest of, of pine trees that had died. And so they shipped these huge pine trees from Colorado all the way to there to use so that the environmentalists couldn't you know, be screaming that look at all these, these trees you cut down. They, go, well, they were already dead. So what they were able to do by clearing them was make more room for new trees to grow. So that was a sort of an interesting uh, supply the Lord provided. There, there I think is the bow, the, the front end of the ship. And those are people getting ready to go in. You enter from the bottom. So there are those, uh, everything is wood and one of the first things that you, you uh, notice when you go in the lowest level is there's just cage after cage and crate after crate. And one of the things that impressed me when I first walked in, you, you don't think about it necessarily, but what was the ark basically? It was a giant cargo ship, right? That's really all it was. And so that first level, you sort of get that impression, this massive ship. And if anybody's going to question whether there's enough room to take a couple of tigers and a couple of lions and a couple of raccoons and so on and so forth, as soon as you see that, you recognize that there was unbelievable amount of room for the, uh, the land animals as well as 
multiple areas and room for storage of food and everything else that Noah and his family was going to use uh, after the flood. This is a, a look right down the center, and you can get a sense. Now, I'm about halfway. I'm about in the middle. But you just get a sense of the size and then these different decks. It's, it's quite an impressive structure. Here's one of those beams on the right where they just took the, took the bark off. And there are, I don't know how many. I mean, there's got to be thousands of those things uh, throughout the ship holding it all together. Another thing that they have through the various levels are displays. And I think hopefully they're going to make more and more displays. They opened it before maybe it was 100% done. In fact, I know they opened it before it was 100% done because they were, they were working on a, on a coffee stand, you know, you know, the place where you could buy some food inside. And that wasn't even finished. But uh, there'll be lots of cubby holes that I'm sure will be full of different displays as well as time goes on. But uh, this was one of my favorites, The Lost Squadron. How many of you have heard about The Lost Squadron? All right, well, if uh, you want to ask me about it, I'll, I'll talk about it later. Anyway, what this particular uh, discovery does is it puts aside the assumption that every layer that they come to when they do an ice core represents a year. They knew when these planes landed and they were able to count the layers and it was way, way, way more than the number of years between the time those planes landed in Greenland and the time they, they dug them up. So ice cores, uh, using ice cores as, uh, as dating is, is not valid because you don't know how many storms there were uh, each year. Another really interesting display, you, you wonder how many people were on earth when the flood hit? Uh, a few hundred thousand, a few million, a billion. We don't know. The Bible doesn't indicate that. But look at these numbers to give you a sense of how many people there could have been on earth. If the population growth from Adam and Eve was 1.1%, 1.1% population growth every year, there would have been 147,000 people on earth. If the population growth rate was 1.2%, it would be 758,000 per year. If it was 1.3%, there would be 3.9 billion people. Uh, and, then, and then it's almost ludicrous, but who knows? If it was 1.4% per year, the population would have been virtually 20 billion people on Earth. Um, I, I thought I had, had it up there, what the the growth rate in, of, on earth is now. I think it's like one point. I think it's about 1.1. I'm not sure. But anyway, it, it's, in that, it's in that vicinity. But you figure these people were living 900 years old. They were incredibly healthy. I imagine they were really virile. <laughs> um, I think that they uh, probably had babies just, uh, just like that. So what could the population rate have been? We don't know. But I think we should understand that there were probably a lot of people uh, killed in that flood. One alternative to that is, well, the violence was terrible. And so maybe they were killing people as fast as they were born. So we, we don't know. Just make sure you understand that. Here's a neat picture. I like the reflection uh, in the reflecting pool of that particular picture. So there was plenty of room on the ark for animals and cargo for the uh, uh, survival of Humanity, as well as the repopulation of the earth <clears throat> with the animals. 
Another uh, objection is the ship could not survive the upheaval of the floodwaters. How many of you have heard the, the forum, I would call it, it wasn't really a debate, the forum between Bill Nye and Ken Ham? Have you seen that? One of the things, no, you didn't, you didn't see that. Yeah. Um, that's okay. One of the objections, and, and it just, Ken just left it laying there, so it sounded really quite powerful. One of the objections that Bill Nye brought out was, my grandfather was a shipbuilder in Boston, and uh, there is no way that they could build a ship that big that wouldn't, through flexing and so forth, uh, not leak. Uh, well, we just don't have the technology just to build a wooden ship that could, could be seaworthy, let alone in the, in the ocean. And uh, so you sort of go, wow, you know, that, that's, a, that's a very simple objection, but it's pretty powerful if, if there really isn't any way to build a boat that large. But uh, excuse me, what about the pyramids? Can we build pyramids today? Do we have the technology to do what those Egyptian pharaohs and all uh, those people did? No. This is, the, the Noah's Ark, I think we should just understand, is another example of the kind of abilities and intelligence and technologies that the ancients had that we don't have. This, this assumption that, oh, we're just so much smarter. Well, we've got a few more technologies, but the idea that we're more intelligent, that we're smarter than Noah or Methuselah or Adam, I think not. I think the intelligence, the IQ, the abilities, even many of the technologies of the human race are being lost, not increasing just because we have computers and power tools. So uh, I, that idea that... Uh, Noah couldn't have built a ship that would have been seaworthy is uh, not, a, not a valid objection either. So let's consider the account of the flood. <clears throat> this is what the Bible says about what happened in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. And the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Notice, I think it's important to see that this is narrative. We are given the date that this cataclysmic earth-changing event took place. I mean, something that big and important, you'd figure you'd get a date, right? We do have a date. The thing is, it's only according to Noah's lifespan. So we don't know that that was February 17th or anything else, you know. But we are given a date. Right there it is. This isn't just uh, a, a pie-in-the-sky story. It's recording very accurate detail about something that happened in history. And notice the order of things. The great fountains of the deep burst forth, and then the rain fell. Now, we tend to focus on the rain, and maybe that's because verse 12 says, and the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and, and that is really impressive. But uh, the first thing that happened, and... Many creation models now are proposing that the bulk of the water, the source of the water, was indeed from underground, not from the, the sky. What did that earth look like when uh, the flood hit? Was it lush and beautiful and fairly flat like this? Probably. Now, uh, I'm, up, I'm up on somewhat of a hill. There could have easily have been uh, uh, topography where mountains could have been uh, a mile above sea level and there still would have been enough water to cover those mountains uh, on the, as a result of the flood. But the mountains that we have today 
mountains six miles high and, and higher. There's not enough water on the earth to cover those mountains. And so people will say, well, you know, that's silly that the Bible says that the, all the mountains were covered with water. There's not that much water on earth. So God did a miracle too and took the water away or whatever. We do not have to assume that the topography of the pre-flood world was, was like the topography of the world today. In fact, we would expect that these massive mountain ranges are a product of much of the upheaval as a result of those great fountains of the deep bursting forth. And perhaps even chunks of the continent slamming together and, and forcing these large mountain ranges up into the sky. So uh, we do know that once... The flood got going. This probably is a lot closer to what things look like. Uh, Massive volcanoes everywhere and uh, not a very pretty sight. These are some of the kinds of effects that we have learned about as a result of just one volcanic eruption. One great fountain of the deep bursting forth. You know, most volcanoes are not the red hot lava that, that pours out that we tend to romanticize so much. Most volcanoes are where a large amount of water down deep in the crust or even further down gets superheated and the pressure builds up until the crust can't hold it any longer and it just explodes. That's what Mount St. Helens uh, did. That's what Mount Pinatubo did just uh, a few years after that. Your general volcano is one in which you've got dust and ash exploding as a result of steam under pressure. The after effects of Mount St. Helens, a relatively small volcano as volcanoes go. You see the, the person standing there and all those, those layers? There he is. That's 25 feet of uh, strata. How long did it take? Normally, the uh, geologists would say, well, those layers represent individual eruptions. That has been completely changed now. Now we understand, oh, wait a minute. One eruption can cause multiple, multiple, multiple strata all at once. 25 feet thick. Look at all those layers there. And they were all formed on June 12th. All formed on the same day. Yeah. Another interesting thing, and I, I, uh, I won't get into it, but maybe some of you have heard of uh, uh, radioactive dating of the different layers. And um, the, the element that they use is called iridium. And so they'll, they'll measure the amount of iridium in a layer. Let's say it just, just this is way, way off. Let's say it's 1%. And so then they go over to Africa and there's a layer and it's got 1% iridium in it. And they say, oh, see, so this is from the same eruption. Or they'll look in an area in Washington State and then they'll look a place in Nebraska. Or they'll also, in those kinds of layers, there'll be different levels of iridium. One layer will have a bunch, another layer will have none. And they'll say, well, see, those are separate eruptions. Actually, what we're finding is that different pyroclastic flows will have different levels of iridium, iridium in them right there. So again, this kind of, these assumptions that were used to date things and determine that this is the same volcanic eruption as that, those things have all been uh, demonstrated to be inaccurate. How long does it take to form the Grand Canyon or any other large canyons? Well, this is Step Canyon. It's 700 feet deep and it eroded. It was produced in the summer and fall of 1980. What had happened was as a result of the eruption, a large body of water was backed up. It backed up a river 
And then, uh, you know, it wasn't constructed out of steel beams and concrete by the uh, Army Corps of Engineers. It was just a natural dam, and it gave way. And when that thing gave way, that water came pouring out and cut this canyon in just a matter of months, 700 feet deep, just, just like that, through solid rock. This wasn't just through a bunch of mud layers that had been pouring out as a result of the volcano. Incredible power of moving water. Now, here's a picture of some of the debris right after the volcano. Look at the, <laughs> look at the, the, the toothpicks. Well, those are big trees. The power of these things is incredible. Um, so just imagine the earth covered with layers and layers of these uh, forests that were, that were collapsed by the, uh, the wind and then the water and then layers of mud forming on top. Uh, where do we get our coal? And perhaps oil, you know, there's controversy about where oil really comes from. It would have come from massive deposits like this. You could imagine if water were to come in and, and close all this down together. Imagine the depth of the wood deposits that you could get into a, in, a, in, a, in a lake area like that. Now, Karen and I had the opportunity to go to Mount St. Helens just earlier this year. So I took a bunch of pictures. This is not Step Canyon. This is just another one that's right up near the crater. And there's still very little growing right at the mountain. But uh, the, the uh, erosion is, is really impressive that uh, came from that water. So here's proof that we were there. And there's beautiful Mount St. Helens in the back. Can you, can you see? It's a little, probably a little dim. But notice uh, these areas were, were all um, uh, affected by, the, by, the, by that single eruption with the dust and ash. Now, I'm not saying that these trees were all blown over, but the area is beautiful. I mean, life is, is doing just fine. <clears throat> Here's a closer picture of it. And you can see Mount St. Helens back there in the, in the, in the background. I think it's about 20 miles uh, away from where I'm taking that particular picture. Now, this is getting a little closer, and you can see in the valley, this had been all totally denuded. I mean, this was just mud and scrape like Step Canyon. And uh, I, I'm not certain that th this is not Step Canyon. I don't think that's a different one, uh, a little closer to the mountain. But you can see that everything is growing back just fine, very, very rapidly. This eruption was in 1980, so we're talking 36 years. Did I get my math right? 36 years later. So you can see that the earth responds very quickly and life comes back. Now, um, uh, obviously, the life came back a lot quicker than in just uh, 36 years. <clears throat> so here we are a little closer. And uh, you can see there just to my to, to my right here, the the where the mountain had blown out. It just literally pulverized everything. And then the, the mountain slid away. Here's a, another view of it. You can see some of the uh, logs still laying around from the, from the eruption. And again, up close to the mountain, things are, not, things are not growing. I mean, it's just so stark. It's just sheer rock. Um, but, but not very far away, you can see a lot, of the a lot of the vegetation beginning to grow. This is uh, right near the blast, and you can still see a lot of the logs laying down. And see how they're all laying in one direction from the, from the explosion, just knocking them all down. There's, a, there's one other picture looking right up into the crater. And uh, uh, it's still, my understanding is you can, you can walk up in there, but you've got to be careful because there are still some areas where it's warm. It's still, 
you know, it's still hot up in there, so you've got to be careful. But they do allow people to take hikes even right up into the crater. Well, as a result of that eruption, uh, as a result of the great fountains of the deep bursting forth, we're also told that, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. And there is a um, creation model called the canopy theory or the canopy model which says that what God did on the second day, where it talks about God separating the water above the expanse from the water below the expanse, that what the waters above the expanse represent was a, a vapor canopy of water above the atmosphere. Then what's the waters below the expanse? Well, this is day two. God hadn't caused that land to appear yet. <clears throat> um, day, uh, on, on day two, the, 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 expanse, the, the water below the expanse would have been the ocean. Right? You got water above, water below, and what in between? The sky, the atmosphere. And this is a, uh, a very popular uh, explanation amongst creationists, and I, I agree with it. But some of the things that have been attributed to the, to the canopy collapsing, we're beginning to realize the, just water from the sky couldn't, couldn't do that especially the amount of strata that we see, the amount of layering. If the water is all from the, if the bulk of the water is from above, and so what you've got is, is a wave and wind action, that keeps stirring up the sediment down below. And then it'll lay, put another layer on, but then it'll stir the sediment again, and then it'll put another layer on. So you won't get what we have in some places, a mile of thousands of layers of sediment. And of course, the... the uh, Uniformitarians say, well, the only way we can get that is from uh, millions and millions of years of laying a layer of sediment and then another layer of sediment. And really that comes from recognizing that, well, water from above, it, it doesn't make sediment like that, except over long periods of time. If it's soft, it's going to stir it all up. So um, the canopy model has some really great things uh, that it uses to explain certain geological features that we see. But it really can't explain all of them. And so there's another model called the hydroplate model that more and more we're finding has a lot of features to it that explain some things that the canopy theory cannot explain. So uh, as usually is the case, you've, you've got different, uh, different ideas because the, what the word tells us is so sparse. So you've got different ideas from different observations different scientific uh, data that we're trying to apply to figure out what exactly was going on. Usually nobody's all right and nobody's all wrong. And so I really think that eventually we are going to have a synthesis uh, as, a, as a creation model where part of the explanation is the canopy because I don't think there's any way around understanding that in Genesis chapter 1 when it says their water above was separated from the water below by the expanse. And then it says, and the expanse God called heaven there's, I mean, there's no way around that. That's, that's sky. And so there was water above the atmosphere. But I think we should also understand there was a lot of water underneath the continent that God caused to appear on the third day. And this is what the hydroplate theory is about. And uh, if you have any other questions about that, I'm going to talk about it a little bit more, but I'll be glad to try to explain some of it. <clears throat> but there were a couple of major effects that the uh, canopy would have had. A greenhouse effect, which... I don't really want to talk about much, and a protective shield, a shield that was lost 
after the flood. What, what would the canopy shield the earth from? Uh, ultraviolet radiation, cosmic radiation, all kinds of bad uh, energy coming from space and coming from the sun to harm life underneath the canopy, harm life on the ocean, uh, on the planet. But there are other forms of radioactivity that uh, also are harmful to life, not just radiation from space. So there are some really fascinating experiments going on at the Sandia National Laboratory in Albuquerque. Uh, there's, a, there's a picture of the, of the lab there. And there's another laboratory in Kiev, Ukraine, called the Proton 21 Labs. And what these labs are doing is they are finding that highly charged electrical um, discharges into pure metals produce a vast number of different types of radioactive elements, different elements and different isotopes of those elements. So the alchemists, um, if they'd been using electricity instead of magic potions, uh, they had it right. You can turn elements into different elements with the right conditions. Here's a, a picture uh, from one of the papers that they published at the uh, Proton 21 lab. This, uh, do I have, I'm pretty sure that this was copper. The, the, the gold looking thing there, it wasn't gold. I think they were using copper in this particular experiment. Then they, they, they charge it. They hit it with lightning, super duper powered electricity, just like a lightning bolt. And when they're done, this is what it ends up looking like. But I don't know if you can, if you can read this. I'll read a little bit of it. These are the different elements that, are, that they then found in the, in the residue uh, on the right. These are the different elements that they then found. They've got magnesium, silicon, sulfur, potassium, uh, manganese, cobalt, uh, zinc, molybdenum, gold, gold. They even got some gold. And these different um, uh, blue dots and red dots represent the different elements and the different isotopes even of different elements. These things were produced instantaneously with, with, the, with the electrical charge on the pure metal. So what, okay, what's this all for? Well, we understand about lightning in the sky, right? But do you realize that down in the, in the rocks, there's all kinds of lightning, it probably isn't light, but all kinds of electrical discharges going on. What causes lightning in a cloud? Friction of the molecules in the water and in the, in the, in the various gases, friction producing static electricity until finally the voltage is high enough and boom, there it goes. Imagine the kind of friction, imagine the kind of electromagnetic discharge that goes on inside the rocks during a, volca during a volcano or during an earthquake. Imagine the kind of electrical discharges going on. What would be then happening during the flood when the great fountains of the deep are bursting forth and the rocks are shifting and sliding against each other down in the ground? There would be lightning going crazy through the ground producing what? All kinds of, elect, of radioactive materials. And so what the hydroplate model proposes is that the bulk of the radioactivity that we find in the crust of the earth was a product of the flood, all instantaneously made. So when they go and they look at the different isotopes in, these, uh, in, the, in the granites of the Grand Canyon and so on and so forth, and they're saying it took literally half a billion years to, for all those isotopes to form, 
Not necessarily so. In fact, we're finding that you can form these things instantaneously with highly, um, with high charge voltage in, in, into the metals. Pretty cool research. So this type of radioactive uh, element production fits the hydroplate model uh, for the flood. That's one of the things that they propose as a result of the, especially the shifting uh, rock surfaces underground. <clears throat> And so with all that radioactivity and the loss of the canopy, what's going to happen? Life on Earth is going to start getting hammered with, with things that hurt DNA, hurt living organisms. So we start out with 900-year-old men, right? And uh, I trust you, you know this. Adam lived to be 930. Well, Noah lived to be 950. So there's no trend here. I mean, yes, they died because of sin, but pretty much, if you do the math, the average lifespan was 900. And the important thing to note is the lifespan of man was not decreasing. It just was sort of bouncing around pretty steady. But something happened, obviously. Just look at the lifespans of man after the flood. Something changed to cause the lifespan of man to begin to decrease. So there we have Shem. He only lived 500 years longer after the flood. Our Pakshad, one of his descendants, 438. And then you just go down the list until you get to Joseph, and he only lived to be 110. Now, that's old in our day, but uh, in his day, I mean, my goodness, his grandfather lived to be 100 and... It wasn't even his grandfather. It would have been his great-grandfather, sorry. Would have lived to be 175. You know, so 110, man, what happened? You get it by a truck? Well, no. Uh, I think part of it might have been all that rich Egyptian food. Um, among other things, you know, and I think that's part of God's plan. After the flood, what did he do? Have at it. Start eating animals. Well, and that could be another thing that we see <laughs> lifespan. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, I really enjoyed that barbecue and I love a steak and uh, even a hot dog now and then. Uh, you know, uh, Tom Taylor, any of you guys know Tom Taylor? I love this line. He said, the last thing I want is for my body to outlast my mind. Um, so, you know, I got glory. That's where I'm going. So I'm not saying be unhealthy, but go ahead and eat your meat. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's okay. God said we could. <laughs> so for years, I was proposing that, that the mutations would be a major explanation. The accumulation of mutations would be a, a major explanation for why the lifespans of man dropped. But, you know, this was just more an anecdotal understanding that radioactivity and, and so forth would, would do this. And, of course, it would drop the lifespan, lifespans. But now it appears that we have confirmation of that proposal. In uh, 2013, some research was done by uh, uh, Joshua Akey and others in the University of Washington. And... To summarize what they basically determined was, and it, this is due to the ability that we have now with new techniques to, to sequence vast numbers of the entire genome of individuals, the entire DNA sequence of an individual. It took us 15 years to do one when we started the Human Genome Project back in the 80s. Now we can do thousands in just a year, thousands and thousands. So because of this, these techniques, they can do a whole lot of uh, comparing at the, at, the, at the base level of all these different genomes. And what they determined was that most mutations in the human race have accumulated in the last 5,000 years. That is 
That is so cool. I mean, that is, that is just like this gigantic, you know, red flashing arrow. Flood, flood, flood. You know, so we've got the fossils in the rock layers. We've got the mutations in our DNA. Everything points to that judgment, the change on this planet as a result of, of God's uh, putting, putting uh, an end to the, the wickedness that, that was so horrific in the days of Noah. So now Aki attributes the rapid increase in mutations to exponential population growth. Well, that, that sort of fits too, doesn't it? I mean, um, what started happening after the flood? You went from eight people to, to the uh, population. Now, of course, we've got ups and downs due to disease and war and so forth. There's another interesting thing. I'll just, just sort of throw this in here that um, uh, mitochondrial DNA studies point to a very curious bottleneck of uh, human population uh, just back uh, in, recent, in recent history. What bottleneck would that have been? Well, you take however, let, let's just say for sake of argument, a, a billion people on earth in the days of Noah, you shrink it down to eight, that's a pretty good bottleneck. <laughs> and we've got genetic proof of, of that event as well. So uh, I'll move on, move on from there. So I think this is a g- good place to stop. Um, I, I, I do propose, though, that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, what's going on when God says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he's also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Does that mean the flood is coming in 120 years? I, it, it could be, but I don't think so. I think what God is talking about is he's going to bring the lifespan of man down. These 900 years to just figure out more horrific ways of sinning are over. And so we see very, very rapidly the, the lifespan of man dropping and dropping until we get to, uh, and, and this isn't a, a matter of, you know, if somebody today, when they had their 120th birthday, you know, they, they drop over dead. I think the oldest recorded um, life that we've got so far is 122 in, mod- in modern history, a French woman. Uh, they think her records were pretty accurate. But people are not reaching 120. That, that, that's a, a limit that God has said. Basically, our genomes are, to, are uh, messed up to the point that that's as long as we're going to be able to live. Um, I guess we could call that depressing news. Uh, hey, what does old age do? It prepares you for heaven. I'll tell you, I mean, uh, the older you get, the more ready you are to go. So I don't want to live to be 120. Um, <laughs> So anyway, uh, praise the Lord for the hope that we have. Uh, you know, we chuckle, but I mean, for some people, it, it's, it's terrifying. You know, I mean, uh, they might not admit it, but they know when they lay on their bed at night, uh, the, the, what's going to happen when I die? You know, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful privilege that we have to be the children of God and know what's going to happen when we die. Hmm? So uh, I hope that you learned a few things. Thanks for letting me share tonight. I know that that wasn't part of your plan. But I was happy to do it. And uh, uh, I'll close in prayer, I guess. Shall, shall I? Yeah. Okay. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, some things that might seem pretty obscure. And with research, we find out, wow, there are reasons for those things. And uh, I, I just thank you, Lord, for the encouragement, especially of the kind of research that's going on in these modern days that far from threatening your word and the validity of it, continue to verify the trustworthiness of it, Lord, whether you're talking about the history of your people, creation, or most importantly, the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came, 
died, and rose again. Lord, thank you for communicating to us these truths. Help us live by them. We pray these things in Jesus' name.